that here we are two weeks post-Oscars and mm. people are still losing their minds over Green Book. <laughs> they'll, be, they'll be okay. Uh, they'll be okay. You know, the most interesting uh, part of this is that a lot of people are now, <laughs> if you can call it blaming, they're blaming Spielberg uh, for twisting people's arms to vote for Green Book because Roma was a Netflix release. Mm. Gotta be honest, I don't think Netflix, Net, Roma ever had a chance. Uh, for best picture, no, it not really not, not after it got nominated for best foreign picture. That's yeah. that's for sure. Yeah. yeah, and it just it wasn't. It was very popular among the producers. Uh, it was pretty popular among actors. Everybody loves Mahershala Ali. Who mm-hmm. doesn't love Mahershala Ali? I mean, he's the first person since Jason Robards to win two out of three. Yeah, uh, you know that's and only the third person ever. Walter Brennan won uh, three out of three out of five uh, best supporting actors in the 1930s, from like 36 to 40. And then uh, Jason Robards won two in a row in the 70s. Now Mahershala Ali. That's good company, man. And, and I got to tell you, Mahershala, sort of came out of nowhere. Now, I know that's never true. Yeah. You know, f- always 25 years yeah. of hard work yeah. goes into coming out of nowhere. Yeah. So I know that that's uh, – but, but in terms of that just sort of impact, yeah. boom. You know, yeah. uh, and, uh, and but well, there it is. It was, it was two things in one year. It was Moonlight mm-hmm. and Luke Cage. Mm-hmm. And he was great on Luke Cage, yeah. man. I'm, I mean, that's where I first saw him. I had never seen the guy before that. And here he is on Luke Cage just being all badass and terrifying and ruthless. And I thought, that's a hell of an actor. Yeah. Where'd that guy come from? And then he shows up in Moonlight and uh, wins an Oscar, and now it's all over. And mm, I'm a detective, and he's the man. Uh, uh, I, I heard someone say, I don't know, but someone said to me, hey, wouldn't he be an interesting Bond? And I'm like... Really? <laughs> Why are the... What? How did we get there? <laughs> I'm like, so, so sometimes no, in this see, town, sometimes in this I town. Know. See, but see, this is this is where people get complete a little. Where people run out of uh, they, they 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 run out of uh, runway, mm-hmm. trying to show how sort of forward thinking and progressive they are. Right? Yeah. It's like, well, we've got. You know, we've got a, a female Doctor Who. We could have a Black American James yeah. Bond. No, you can't. No, you can't. No, you, can't. <laughs> you can't. You can't. You, Bust, you can't. Buster Rhymes can't play James <laughs> Bond either. I, get, I got a whole list of a lot of people that can't play James Bond. Well, just you, cut it out with that, know, man. But seriously, why would he even want to? Well, even if that were anywhere in the realm of possibility, hmm. the world is open to him now. He is yeah. playing a character over 50, like a 50-year, 30-year span on True Detective. Yeah. What a great opportunity yeah, yeah, that well, is. So that's the silliest thing in the world. Oh silliest my thing in the world. Gosh, that's nuts. No, the, the the thing that's interesting is now that Spielberg is very openly lobbying for a rule change. Well, there are two things that we should talk about here real quickly that yeah. are going to happen in the next few weeks. So Spielberg, there's going to be a meeting of the Academy Governors uh, in the next month or so, and they're going to end of end of March, I guess it is, uh, and they're going to talk about rules changes as they do once a year after mm-hmm. the Oscars. Mm-hmm. And one of them is that Spielberg is heavily pushing for the uh, the idea that you have to be exclusively in theaters, not streaming, not uh, available on SVOD, nothing. You got to be in theaters for four weeks before you show up anywhere else. Mm. And that's meant to really twist Netflix's arms, oh, saying it is. Uh, if you got a movie you want to put up for Oscars, put it out in theaters for four weeks. Then put it on Netflix. Yeah, yeah and they they tried to do that at Cannes. They they did, and you and know? they and the French rebelled too. The French yeah. revolted, and they they got to understand, you know, that I, I get it. Not being in theaters is part of your whole deal. That people, you know, hey, I don't need to go to the theaters. I can stay home and see a Will Smith movie. But at the same time, the Oscars are different from the Emmys mm. for a very simple reason. It's the difference between that big screen down the street 
and the one in your living room. Yes, they're completely different academies. Yeah. You know? But but on the other hand, I suppose what has what we, in fact, have to deal with is most people are watching most of these movies at their house on big True. gigantic screens with True. amazing sound systems and – uh, and, 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 and except for big tentpole movies, I don't see that stopping uh, any, in, yeah. anytime soon. Um, so well, it, the, it, the it, Academy has to figure out a way to do this without cutting off its nose to spite its face. And part of it, they, they are trying to support the exhibition business, trying to keep the exhibition model alive, and uh, which has taken some hits. But, you know, the only way to do that is make better movies. Yeah. But if you well, are making great make, movies. Make better movies at lower prices. Better, better movies, movies at, lower, at prices lower prices and charge less for yeah. them. Yeah. Put them into theaters. Leave them there longer. That's what I meant by lower prices. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And but but less expensively too. Yeah, you make, know? No, yeah, make no less. Ex- uh, look, if you're gonna make a two hundred million dollar movie, then it ought to be uh, in a big old tent pole that's gonna be. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, most movies don't have to cost that much money. No. I, I can remember Out of Africa. I think cost thirty million dollars. It did. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, and today that would be considered a pauper's film. You know? I know. So that's just insane. Yeah. A Meryl Streep, Robert Redford film. But still, you know, we, we, we see enough movies. You can you can go to Japan, Thailand, Indonesia, and you can spend six, seven, eight, nine, ten million dollars and make something that looks like a hundred and fifty million dollar movie. Here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all of those Thai epics, you know, the legends of Legend of Surya Thai and Bang Rajan, these these things with thousands of extras and battle scenes and costumes and elephants and gold leaf, you know, uh, decor. Those things are like fifteen, twenty million dollars tops. Yeah. yeah. And they, they look, you know, so you, you don't have to have to settle for these things. Yeah. So anyway, it'll be very interesting. The other thing, have you been keeping up on the, the Writers Guild and the agency thing? No. Have you been following What's this? What's going on? So the apparently it's about every forty-two years, I think it is, that the uh, the writers renegotiate their contract with the agencies. Mm-hmm. That hasn't happened since about nineteen seventy-seven. Really? That was the last time. What what, what would there be negotiate other than? Here's the... what there is to negotiate: uh, packaging fees. Oh. The 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 feeling is now that in this brave new world. Uh, and there have there has been a lot written about this, and a number of editorials basically pointing out uh, that packaging fees are now how the agencies make most of their money, mm-hmm. and they very often do so at the expense of their clients. Mm-hmm. And they're the, pimping their clients. Is what's it, happening? That's exactly and, it. That and, the clients now basically work for the agencies, not the other way around, mm-hmm. and that the agencies are making huge amounts of money, even when writers aren't. Writers' salaries have gone down. Agencies' earnings have gone up, mm-hmm. and that they're not necessarily serving the best interests of their of their uh, the, the the writers they represent. And that under the law, and, and I've listened to a number of podcasts on this. Our friend David Weishart has mm-hmm. been really following this. Um, that the basically this is not like negotiating with the studios where the studios have the upper hand. The writers want something and the studios have it have it to give them, which is work. Mm-hmm. In this case, it's the agencies who want something, which is namely clients to represent. Mm-hmm. So the writers guild is in in a power position here, and what they're what they're demanding is that agencies number one give up all packaging. Mm-hmm. You will no longer take a packaging fee. You can keep packaging, but you'll be packaging 
for 10% of all of the clients that you attach right. to it. Yeah. You will not be saying, okay, we're going to waive the uh, the fees from the clients and we're going to just take a piece of the show. Mm-hmm. You know, we want 3% of every every episode and we want, you know, the, the, it's like a 3 3 percent mm-hmm. split between interest and we want some back end. And then they create these side shell companies mm-hmm. that are actually production companies. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're saying, look, MCA was forced out of the agency agenting business back in the 60s for doing that and they became a studio they mm-hmm. owned universal so you're now violating that consent decree you need to decide are you an agency or a production company mm-hmm. if you're a production company you will no longer be fiduciary uh for any of these clients mm-hmm. you are going to make movies and they will have they, they'll go elsewhere so the ultimatum here is that when april 9 i think is the is d-day they're taking a vote with the wga end of march and they come april 9 or whatever um if the agencies basically the big the big four are mm-hmm. the ones that are that are sort of in the in the uh, in the crosshairs you know caa uh wme uh, ICM, APA, ICM, yeah. and UTA. UTA. Those are the those are the four that are in the crosshairs because they do all the packaging, right? Mm. Um, they're the ones that take all the packaging fees for for eighty six percent of TV shows, something like that. So, it, it, which effectively makes them the the, the complete gatekeepers, complete gatekeepers of, of what of what gets made. Yeah, absolutely. And and this is what a lot of producers have said, which is I can't get a show on the uh, even made unless I pay my extortion fee mm-hmm. to the agencies. And the studios don't want to run afoul of the agencies because then talent will be withheld from them. So the Writers Guild, and apparently with the backing of some other other guilds as well, is saying uh, when an April 9 rolls around, if the agencies have not agreed, we expect all of our members, every writer, if you are represented by an agent at one of those agencies that has not signed the new agreement, mm-hmm. we expect you will fire your agent fire them. Drop. and go to a new agency that has signed on or – we expect your agent to leave that agency and go to another agency that is a signatory. Mm-hmm. So it's, and and I don't, man, I don't, I, I don't see how the big agencies survive that. Uh, you're going to have to agree, and you're going to have to just kill your your packaging fee situation, or you're going to have to decide to become a production company. And and this is found money anyway. No, nothing's going to happen to you. You're still going to be making your ten percent that you get from sure. representing writers and negotiating fees. You want to make more money? Negotiate bigger fees for your writer. You your, your your 10% goes up. That's, That's the way you make more money. Yeah. Uh you don't you know the, the fee yeah the package I've always thought there was something shady about that dude. Yeah. Yeah. Always. And it's and it's uh it's it's quite interesting how the uh some of the breakdowns because they the, you know you look at some of the breakdowns and a lot of people have been writing about this but a lot of the breakdowns talk about how exactly how that money that the student the agency is making mm-hmm. is coming out of the pocket of the showrunner coming out of the pockets of the writers mm-hmm. uh you know that it's coming off the top of the show and everybody thinks oh I'm getting a piece they're not taking my fee and I get a bigger piece of the show yeah but they took they took a piece off the top of the show so now there's less show for you to get a piece of yeah yeah uh, li- li- literally fewer human beings work on that show yeah. actors making less money than they would have been making pro- yep. producers making less money Everybody. than they would have been making all of it to go into servicing that packaging fee for uh, a, a group of agencies yeah. and if you have a couple of agencies team up on it they could they could basically block out well, three quarters of the talent <laughs> and that's also the the funny thing is that like well if you're packaging 
then and you have two agencies, well, it's not really a package anymore, is it? Now yeah. it's two agencies. Yeah. Well, it's called a co-packaging fee at that point, right? Then then they start playing that game, and it's uh, oh, this is this is since the days of Mike Ovitz. Yes, this is the, about as shady as the because you know Mike Ovitz and and a, and a few uh, hot shots is, before him pretty much took the business away from the studio. They did, and agency agents, big mega agents became the guys. This is our this is our big D Day moment. So mm. this is one of the this is the next few weeks are going to between what the Academy does vis-a-vis Netflix and what the Writers Guild does vis-a-vis the agencies, uh, by the by the beginning of April, we could be looking at a whole different Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and in terms of talent, uh, writers, actors, uh, maybe not so much directors because yeah. a lot of directors are producers, but in terms of the creative talent, it's going to make a big damn difference. It sure will. Yeah. It sure will. So we're going to get into the uh, we're going to get into our uh, foreign films right now. We haven't covered foreign in a while. We've got a lot of great foreign, including some Oscar nominated uh, stuff and award season stuff. And uh, we got a couple of giveaways. Boy, do we have some great giveaways! Um, uh, they are both from uh, Wellgo, who releases tons of really, really terrific uh, Asian material. Mostly, not exclusively, but mostly. And the first one is a film. <coughs> Excuse me. That got uh, heaps and heaps of love from the Los Angeles Film Critics Association, and uh, mainly for Stephen Yun, who won our Best Supporting Actor award. Stephen Yun from uh, The Walking Dead, who uh, performs a completely Korean language role in Burning by Lee Chang Dong. Um, I was not a fan of Burning, but man, my colleagues went nuts for it, and I know Tim is. Uh, is more partial to it than, than I. So I will say this about it. Burning, is, first of all, is a long movie. Uh, it's about two and a half hours long. And uh, it is an interesting... It's interesting for a while, at least, in, the, in that it's a drama about... I like a little bit more than you. Our, yeah. our, our Justin Chang. You know. Justin went nuts for it. And, and, that's, and part of the problem is that the emails are flying back and forth. And by about the 10th person who said, Burning should be considered for everything... I was thinking, well, I got to see this. Yeah. And I put it on, and, you know, I'm sitting there for about an hour and 45 minutes, and there's this guy who's a little bit disconnected from society, and he's got, you know, he's, like, trying to tend to his dad's farm while his dad has legal trouble. And then he gets involved with this woman who's very, you know, flighty and kind of, and oh, and then there, and then she sh- and then she comes back with, uh, you know, she used to be fat when they were in mm-hmm. school, and now she's hit, she's cute. And so they have a relationship, and then she comes back from some kind of foreign trip with this other guy who's a super rich playboy played by Steven Yun. And so now there's like like a love triangle going on and all these weird emotions. And this is, okay, fair enough. But by the time I'm about two hours into this movie um, and not much has happened other than the fact that there's kind of a vertigo-y twist. Yeah, all I'm that like, stuff with the burning, um, uh, the, the burning, by the way. They're, yeah. Somebody's burning, uh, what are they? They're... They're not. Um, they're they're they're, they're bur- greenhouses. Yeah, uh, burning greenhouses. Yeah. There's like some arson of greenhouses going on, and I'm just sitting there going, you know, honestly, if this is a metaphor, just just pay it off soon, please. If it's not a metaphor, could you get to the point? It's just really kind of. And then it wound up basically being a, a certain kind of a genre film. I won't tell you what kind of genre film, mm. but I'm like, really, is that it? Like you 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 pl- toy with me for two and a half hours, going, ooh, am I this? Am I this? Maybe I'm this. Maybe I'm this. Oh, maybe I'm that. Oh, could I be? No, I'm just this over here. I'm just, yeah. I'm just, I'm just a typical run of the mill. Yeah. And yeah. and I was kind of pissed off at that point. I didn't. I really resented that. However, I am a total minority on this. 
Everyone else loves this movie. Like, everyone else loves this movie. So, I will be totally fair. Tim, take it away. Why it, is Burning Cool? Well, it was. I, I did appreciate the film. Uh, it, it's, it's fairly meditative. Uh, it, it moves so incredibly slowly. Uh, it, it, the beautiful young lady who's in it, and that little odd love triangle that they're yeah. going on leads to a few uh, interesting moments. But, no, I, 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 I fall in between, someplace in the middle. It's a, it's a film that I appreciate more than one that I deeply, deeply like, but I did appreciate it. Well, we've got that. So we have Burning. We have uh, three copies of Burning to give away, and then we have four copies of Rampant, which is also a uh, well-go release of a Korean film. This is a period Korean film, uh, an action genre film that's, uh, that's, that's, that's actually quite good. It takes place in ancient Korea. And uh, you've got these things that are called night demons that are uh, that are terrorizing the uh, the people, and uh, a, a hero has to rise to uh, you know read to lead the the pushback against these 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 you know these, these like uh, undead like zombie monster things that uh, that are terrorizing the the, the land. Anyway, um, it's called Rampant, and uh, you know it's basically a Korean ghost movie. Kind of a zombie movie. It's like a ghost movie, zombie movie, all in one. But it's uh, you know they they make good ones. Train to Busan, which was uh, made previously by the same studio, is still in that range as well. Train to Busan is a is an allegorical zombie movie mm. set on a train. Uh, Koreans love their trains. Remember uh, mm. what was the ice? Uh, oh yeah, the ice, uh, the icebreaker, the yeah, train about yeah, the, the train yeah, going through yeah. the ice. Yeah, well. So uh, anyway, Korean films keep getting better and better, and their 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 production value is just top notch. So rampant, uh, like a like a medieval Korean World War Z. Let's call it that. Anyway, uh, we have four copies of that, and that is for genre fans really cool. So if you want to be in the running for this. Here's what you got to do. Got to send us an email to gods at digigods.com or gods at cinegods.com. And uh, make sure the email gets to us no later than uh, Sunday the 17th. And if it's dated Monday the 18th, not going to be able to do anything. But uh, Sunday the 17th, if, if we see that time and date stamped on the email, then we can uh, then we can roll with it. So Sunday the 17th is your deadline. Send us an email that says rampant. R-A-M-P-A-N-T in the subject line, name and address in the body of the email. Send it to gods at cinegods.com or gods at digigods.com. And if you want to be in the running for one of the three copies of Burning, go ahead and send us an email with Burning in the subject line. B-U-R-N-I-N-G. No funny spellings, please. <laughs> gods at cinegods.com or gods at digigods.com. Name and address in the body of the email. And by Sunday the 17th, we will have a drawing and uh, randomly select the uh, the winners. So uh, there it is, two really cool uh, Korean films, one of which I kind of liked and the other of which I didn't like, but Tim liked and everyone else liked, so what am I? Yeah, I'm somebody but... who doesn't like burning. <laughs> uh, that's it. And uh, let's move on. we got more cool stuff. Uh, well, in, including a couple more neat foreign films. Uh, uh, the, this one, Shoplifters, which was a film that was talked about. Uh, Coriata. Uh, Coriata, a film yeah. that was talked about. Um, won, won the Cannes Film Festival yeah. and got an Oscar nomination. And, and kind of a neat little movie. Um, uh, we meet this family. This family uh, seems to be a sort of like small... Uh, time crime family going around doing things like shoplifting and whatnot. Um, uh, they run across this. They run across this little boy, and they sort of adopt this little boy into their family in a fairly complicated sort of way. The little boy seems to have been left 
uh, alone by his family. And what we come to find out is that this family really isn't a family per se. And in other words, the blood ties that it looks like they all have are not there, but they've really sort of um, uh, aggregated themselves together in this sort of way. And and this is what they do. They do all of these little, they have all kinds of little, little things that they do in, in order to survive. And the little boy and the little girl uh, they come to wonder whether or not this is the way that they ought to be living, whether or not the 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 the, the, the stealing and whatnot that they're doing is correct. It's a re really sort of interesting film. Funny is mostly what it is. I found it, this. This is it's a very sweet film. It's a very sweet and funny little movie. It's um, it's also you know Corey Ada's made Corey Ada's career is so interesting, and his films can be pretty emotionally blunt sometimes too. They're always very humanistic, but mm. sometimes they get to a really raw nerve. And uh, I didn't feel, find that Shoplifters got so raw. Shoplifters has a more kind of, um, has a lighter, more uplifting touch than uh, what he's done in the last decade or so. And, well, uh, one of them here in my hand, The Third Murder, another film yeah. of his, which is a courtroom drama, a fairly heavy uh, courtroom drama. It's about fatherhood and righteousness and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, uh, exactly what you mean. Both films, well, interestingly, uh, the 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 recent film Shoplifting doesn't have anything on this DVD. There's really uh, nothing but the movie uh, yeah. here. Um, the the other film, uh, The Third Murder, has a, a bonus short on it and some other things um, by way of special features in Chinese with English subtitles. Got some other uh, stuff here. The Golem or the Golem, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, this is a uh, this is from Epic, and it is. Um, uh, this is an English language film, but I'm only going to call it foreign for because it's from the the directors of Jerusalem with a Z, and uh, it has a uh, let's put it this way. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's basically foreign filmmakers, but the original Der Gollum is a foreign film, mm -hmm. uh, which is one of the great uh, German silent masterpieces, and it. Um, it, it, it's one of the original silent horror films. It's often lumped in there with, uh, with well, with with you know Nosferatu, Nosferatu yeah. right, all that stuff. And and uh, it's based on ancient Jewish lore, and it's kind of a, it's sort of a Frankenstein tale of sorts. Um, you know, monsters that are conjured through spiritualist means and whatnot. So the this is a modern updating of that. I don't know. That it's all that faithful to necessarily the 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 legacy of the lore, but it's an interesting counterbalance to uh, it, you know the fact that nobody has sought to make a golem film or a golem film. I hate to say golem because it's the Lord of the Rings, a golem. Yeah, yeah. No one's thought not to make a golem film for generations, not since the silent era. It's a little bit surprising, and this is the first one. Uh, it doesn't. It's not the same plot by any means, but it's the same sort of milieu. There's a you know a, like a, a plague. And in this very, very close Jewish community, and, um, you know, it deals with all of the, the, the politics of being Jewish and persecuted. And a, a woman winds up conjuring up the spirit of a, of a golem, and, you know, from there everything kind of goes haywire. Uh, the, uh, the directors do an audio commentary. And there are a few featurettes and deleted scenes and so forth. Uh, there's even a little interview from Fright Fest. If you, if this in subject matter interests you, I think the movie will be interesting. Uh, unless you, but otherwise, it might not really be uh, a whole lot of worth your time. Uh, there's also Claire's Camera, which is uh, directed again uh, a uh, Korean director, Hong Sang Soo, and it's, but it is kind of a Korean film and kind of a French film. This was uh, at the Cannes Film Festival about, I think it was last year. Uh, it might have been the year before. I think it was the year before. Uh, and it co-stars Kim Min-Hee, 
who is a Korean actress, and Isabelle Huppert, who is obviously the great French legendary Isabelle Huppert, who is also in a new film uh, that uh, that I just reviewed on radio last Friday, and uh, which is actually kind of a riot, which I'll talk about in a moment. But anyway, the... Um, uh, the, the the idea here is that you have this uh, this this French school teacher named Claire, and the movie is called Claire's Camera. And Isabelle Huppert plays a school teacher, a French school teacher, um, with a a very unusual camera that she is brought to her first visit to the Cannes Film Festival. And um, the she there she meets this young woman who is a uh, who's working for a Korean film company there. And the rest of the movie um, becomes this weird, sort of very low-key uh, whodunit detective story where they are um, trying to solve something that's not really a crime. They're trying to solve like, well, I won't tell you, but there's a, but there's a, the the reason that they're they're going around playing detective is the is the most mundane and ridiculous and silly of things imaginable. The movie is really one of these very meditative uh, kind of Euro-Asian two-handers where a couple of people just talk about a lot of stuff. It's almost like a Henry Jaglum movie. Right? Ah, Henry. It, it sort of verges on that. It's like a South Korean Henry Jaglum movie shot in France with a French actress. New Year's Day, sense. Baby yeah. Fever, all of that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, what I, I so it's fine. It's, uh, you know, it's a certain kind of film for a certain kind of person. Uh, this is from Cinema Guild. It's on Blu-ray. It looks nice. It looks better on Blu-ray than it certainly did even in the theaters. I saw this thing projected and I thought it looked horrible. And on Blu-ray, way better. Also has a, uh, a few extras on it, including uh, reflections by Claire Denis, the French filmmaker, and then um, uh, a director's dialogue at the New York uh, Film Festival with uh, Hong Sang-soo. It's perfectly fine. Interesting stuff. Uh, France Fanon, Black Skin, White Mass, is an interesting documentary from 1995. Um, about Franz Fanon, who is the author of The Wretched Earth, mm-hmm. uh, a fairly famous uh, book. This one is, too. Uh, it, it, so this is sort of like a documentary with, with reenactments in it, right? right? Um, so Franz was this psychoanalyst and theorist, and most of the writing that he did, he did back in the 50s and the uh, the late 40s and the 50s. He passed away, I think, in the early 60s, if, if I'm not mistaken. Haitian-born. Some kind of Caribbean. I want to say Martinique. Martinique, yeah. I want to say yeah. Martinique. Yeah. Um, so, so black, uh, a French. And he was writing about Colombia colonialism uh, mostly and what it meant to be colonized uh, colonialism all over the world it's, re- it's really really interesting stuff he was writing at the same time of uh, 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 the uh, sort of black activist black power movement here in the United States so guys like Huey Newton and Bobby sure. Seale they were all reading him at the time this is a very very interesting but fairly short sort of docudrama reenactment kind of thing with Colin Salmon Colin Salmon is a British actor that uh, anybody who watches a lot of British detective shows will know he was, he was in all those MI shows MI this and my that and prime suspect yeah and, uh when you see his face you'll be like oh that guy uh, uh so he's been around for years it's uh it's very nice bonus features include uh between two worlds by mark nash in an essay uh written by the filmmakers here as well as mark nash um interesting stuff if you're interested into uh sort of psychoanalytical uh theoretical sure. uh socioeconomic yeah. <laughs> yeah. uh heavy trip on dvd Man, did I have fun with this movie. This movie is so bananas. This is a um this is from Finland. Now here's the thing you gotta know about the Finns. The Finns have the wackiest, most offbeat sense of humor of anybody in Europe. Indeed. They really do. More so even than the English. 
they are really they, they, when the Finns go nutty, they go really nutty. I'm a huge fan of the uh, the Finnish uh, band, the Leningrad Cowboys. Subject of a number of Cars Maki movies, which are all on Criterion now, mm-hmm. uh, which I've seen I, I've seen them play live. I love the Leningrad Cowboys. So here's what's here's what's going on in Heavy Trip. You've got a bunch of total losers uh, in Finland who are uh, they they they're a heavy metal band. They're just four complete and total losers in a heavy metal band. And they have been rehearsing for like 15 years. They've never played a gig. These guys, all they've ever done is rehearse. They just rehearse in one guy's garage or barn every, 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 every few days. And that's it. They, 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 they never expect to actually play a gig. They're just waiting for that big, big gig. And finally, through a bizarre circumstance, they wind up thinking, somewhat incorrectly, that they've been invited to a heavy metal festival mm-hmm. in Norway. So they're like, rock on! So now they're going to go play their big, big, big gig in Norway. And um, uh, how do I do this without giving anything away? So there's there's there, there's tragedy that besets them. I can't really tell you what the tragedy is. But nonetheless, to, oh, they, they manage to overcome it and go on this absolutely just hilariously freakish road trip to get themselves to uh, the big heavy metal fest in Norway. There's so much in the middle that I'm not getting into that I can't because mm. it would give all the jokes away. Uh, but this thing is an absolute stone cold riot. It is really, really, really funny. Uh, and the name of the band—I can't tell you how badly I want to tell you the name of the band. But, <laughs> but, but when—but I can't. It's—it's it's part of the joke. When they come up with the band name in the movie, you're—you're you're gonna be just weeping in tears. You're, you'll be laughing so hard. It's just not to be believed. It's so funny. So um, anyway, the movie is called Heavy Trip. And uh, I wish it was on Blu-ray. I really do, because it's a it's a nicely shot movie as well. But uh, it isn't. It's just on DVD, and you got to check it out. It's a whole lot of fun. Oh, and I have. I am not a witch. Uh, uh, this is this was an interesting movie that we, we were talking about a little bit um, yeah. um, this past awards season, uh, BAFTA award winning film. It's about a little girl uh, who, uh, after a goofy incident in her village, is accused of being a witch, and it's, she's sent off to witch camp. They actually have these places where, where they would send the people. She's the only little girl at this quote-unquote witch camp. They take a ribbon uh, and tie it to her, and they, and, and, and they tie the ribbon uh, 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 to the ground or to other things, and they tell her that if she attempts to escape, that she will turn into a goat. Uh, and this is the sort of thing um, that actually happens. It's very provocative. Uh, in places like this, so present-day Zambia is where this all takes place, um, and you know it's a it's 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 sort of reflective of a tragic thing, but at the same time it's sort of funny and a little bit ridiculous, and uh, and it is um, revealing of some of the sort of colloquial ideas that exist all around the world, uh, even to, into this very day. Uh, there are some people who believe in some perfectly insane things, uh, and this is one of them. Um, although it is, like I said, actually kind of funny. I am not a witch. Written and directed by Regano Nayoni. Uh, Outrage Coda. It, you know, there was a moment when Takeshi Kitano's movies came here routinely yeah. in the uh, in the kind of throughout the '90s. Uh, there was he had, he had that moment, and I interviewed him at one point, uh, and he you know he, he I think won an award at the Cannes Film Festival at one point too, uh, and then he's kind of fallen off the radar a little bit now. I don't know why they continue to be really really good. He just has it, it's that that deadpan 
style of his, that sort of cynical, deadpan uh, sense of uh, tragic comedy that is Maybe just... the audience changed. I don't know. Could be, but anyway, he mm-hmm. continues to be great. He, uh, you know, obviously bills himself as an actor as Beat Takeshi, and then as a director, he's Takeshi Kitano. Must be a thing in uh, in Japan. Anyway, uh, this is, you know, this is a sequel to Outrage, uh, and uh, ergo the name Outrage Coda. And uh, it is... It, in theory, allegedly, the last chapter of all of his Yakuza movies, which I would be sad if that were the case. Um, but anyway, he plays a. Uh, this is basically a, a you know a, a Kinji Fukasako movie with his unique sense of humor twisted onto it, which means it's all about you know uh, Yakuza wars, and that's all it is. It's just it's warring Yakuza's, but um, it has a little bit of an interesting uh, present day twist on it that involves you know some economics and some politics and 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 uh, dealings with South Korea and and you know business culture, and uh, it, it's it's good even though it's very specific in the things that it comments on culturally. It's really really it's so well done and it has all of his trademark uh, flourishes and uh, I just think the world of the guy I wish it was also on Blu-ray but it isn't mm. this is from Film Movement it's only on DVD but it would be great to have on Blu-ray it's a really cool looking movie Outrage Coda sequel to Takeshi Kitano's Outrage uh, I have uh, Happy Hour here uh, a fairly interesting film that was was at the Locarno Film Festival um, about these about these Japanese women Four of them. The film begins with four of them. They're good friends. Uh, they can sort of tell each other everything. A couple of them are married. One of them is divorced. Um, uh, one of them goes through a bad through a, through a bad divorce, Ooh. and then this just sort of disappears in an almost sort of like um, oh, oh what's that? Love Ventura, the uh, and Antonioni film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it was, uh, people just disappear from the movie, and yeah. the other and are left wondering what happened, and they sort of go through their lives and start examining everything. It's really sort of interesting. I think you and I catch a lot of flack for liking Love Ventura yeah. because a lot yeah. of other people around here don't care for they it. They don't care. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, bonus features on this film include some cast interviews. It's a it's a it's a it's a lovely and sort of emotional film set inside the lives of these of these four women and told from their point of view, and I rather like it for that reason alone. Got uh, got three French films here that are worth check, uh, talking about. One is by Xavier Gianoli, uh, starring Vincent Linden, who continues to be a really amazing actor. I used to criticize him for being just kind of wooden and, and very Gary Cooper-like, and he just has found a groove with nuance that makes him such an interesting actor now. Along with that face. because that that, that, he's, he's He's developed a, one of those faces. Yeah. You know. he, and he knows how to use it. Yeah, yeah. In a really subtle way. Uh, anyway... This is interesting. It's, this is called The Apparition, and it's about a guy, a really kind of a troubled journalist, who uh, is asked to uh, lead an investigation into a Virgin Mary sighting, uh, an apparition of the Virgin Mary, a vision, uh, as it were. And uh, it's it's that journey, that investigation, that is really, really very interesting, not just in terms of the investigation, but what it does to him personally. Yeah. And, and they hire around. him because he's a journalist. Yes, exactly. And and, and he's known for, you know, That's, getting you know, yeah. just journalistic and, and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it brings into question all sorts of issues. It, all kinds of stuff. Uh, Giannoli previously made the movie Marguerite, which was also very, very good. And does an interview here, and there's, uh, it, it's just, it's really, really, it's a, it's just a beautifully, beautifully made film. It's They're kind, really, of, kind really, of movies of a theme, aren't they? 
They are, sort of. Uh, and this is another really good one. This uh, received a bunch of critical attention, I, I guess, about a year and a half, two years ago. Um, won an award at the Césars. Was a big deal at, uh, two thousand. I guess it was 2014. It's been some time. 2014 in France. It's called Hippocrates' Diary of a French Doctor by a director named Thomas Lilty, who, I was, who was not on my radar before, mm. uh, but it pretty much is now. Uh, and this, you know, the French do a very good job of going into workplaces and really kind of doing a penetrating examination of people in particular locations and environments, very often schools. But uh, like it could happen uh, today, which was a wonderful Tavernier film set in a public yeah. school system, uh, or even uh, you know the, the class, yeah. which won the, yeah. the, the Palme d'Or at Cannes. Uh, this kind of does the same thing uh, from the point of view of a Paris hospital and uh, uses a young doctor uh, played by Vincent Lacoste as sort of the eyes and the ears of, of this place. This was um, this was a film we had to watch for Colcoa. This was in the, in the running with Colcoa uh, a few years ago. And uh, I remember we were all really, really impressed by it. It's, uh, it, it, it isn't like an American medical drama. This isn't Grey's Anatomy, you know. This really does kind of look at the uh, look at what it means to be a doctor, what it means to become a doctor, uh, what demands it places on your personal life, on your time, on your relationships, and uh, it's it's uh, it also kind of puts the French medical system on trial in an interesting way. Um, so, in any case, Thomas Lilty, who directed it, as it happens, is also a physician. Uh, and uh, you can tell uh, that it definitely he definitely brings a sense of uh, you know having been there and done that to it. And a wonderful supporting performance by uh, Reda Kateb, who won a César for supporting actor. And then the uh, third one here is uh, Gauguin, Voyage to Tahiti, starring Vincent Cassel. Uh, you know, Gauguin has been depicted in a lot of movies. Mm, yeah. Also in the uh, in the uh, the the, the uh, Willem Dafoe. Uh, oh, uh, uh, Eternity's Gate. Eternity's Gate. Yeah. He's, he's depicted in that by uh, Oscar Isaac. Oscar Isaac. Yeah. And my favorite is still Anthony Quinn in Lust for Life. Yeah. I yeah. I, I love Anthony Quinn in Lust for Life. I think opposite he absolutely Kurt, right? opposite Kirk Douglas. Yeah. And I thought Anthony Quinn perfectly captured you know the spirit of what I always imagined to be Gauguin. Um, I don't know that Vincent Cassell is the best person to cast as Gauguin, but he definitely got the movie made, and he's a great actor. The, the problem here is that the, all, this is not really even a story. Uh, you know, as everybody probably knows by now, Gauguin uh, abandoned his family mm -hmm. at a certain point, went to Tahiti, mm -hmm. and lived sort of the life of a, of a libertine pauper there, mm -hmm. wound up marrying like a 14-year-old girl. Yeah. And impregnating her, and yeah. you know, there's a there's a whole lot of really kind yeah, of yeah yeah, 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 yeah. People trying to they they often skip that bit of the story. <laughs> yeah, but all those beautiful girls in those paintings. Yeah, you're yeah. sleeping with them. Yeah, you know, and uh, they were girls, and they were girls. They were all underage. Yeah. and you know, but it's Tahiti. He yeah, he could get away with that's it. A, that's a, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but in any case, all this really is is just sort of a very artful, uh, angsty recreation of that whole period and ordeal and those events. And it's interesting, but at a certain point, about 45, 50 minutes in, you kind of start looking at your watch thinking, is this really going to start doing anything? Or are we just going to keep living in Tahiti and sleeping with young girls and painting paintings and making no money? And that's kind of all it is. Mm. It really doesn't go anywhere other than that. It's sort of very repetitive and very elongated. And you're supposed to sort of carry, uh, be carried along by Vincent Cassell's performance, but it doesn't really, it's not enough. You still need a story. 
So I ad- I admire the the craft and I admire sort of the general idea, but it needed more of a more of a script. Really yeah. needed more of a script. Uh, and that is a Blu-ray from Cohen. Beautiful to look at, but uh, really needed more more meat on its bones. Mm. Uh, Moko Jumbi uh, is, is, is an interesting little film here set mostly in uh, Trinidad and Tobago, Trinidad and Trinidad. It's about this young um, uh, uh, Trinidadian woman who grew up in the UK and then goes back to her family home in Trinidad. And she, 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 she runs into this boy who lives across, this, across the road, a different, a different, a different tribe, uh, because there are Africans and there are these sort of indigenous Indian people, and all of these things are sort of irrelevant in the context of, um, uh, of, of this society. Anyway, she falls in love with the boy. They have this sort of tattoo fetish thing going on with each other. Uh, she has this very, um, uh, this auntie, uh, domineering auntie, who wants her to break it off. So it becomes a bit of a Romeo and Juliet kind of thing. Although there is this sort of underlying spiritual act. Um, aspect to it. The, the Moko Jumbi is this sort of um, uh, spiritual figure of these tall, slender sort of uh, spirits that wander yeah. around the sugarcane fields. And if you follow your, your true love, they will. if you fall in love and follow your love, they'll lead you to love. It's interesting stuff. A lot of uh, cultural sort of and gothic stuff. Uh, DVD specials include a trailer and an audio commentary with the director, Vashate Anderson. So Hong Sang-soo, who did Claire's Camera, mm-hmm. which we talked about earlier, uh, a better Hong Sang-soo movie from uh, just this last year is The Day After. And uh, this was at, uh, at a few different festivals, including the uh, Toronto Film Festival, and this is a significantly more interesting movie, um, perhaps because he's not in France and sort of trying to direct uh, Isabelle Huppert and all this other stuff uh, at the same time. Um in any case, the uh, this is kind of, this is actually quite funny, and it's which is not necessarily easy with South Korean movies because South Korean sense of humor and sense of comedy doesn't always uh, translate very well. But in any case, this is about a uh, a book publisher who um, has been having an affair, and his wife finds out, and it blows it up, and um, the uh, now he has a new office manager who uh, comes in at the worst possible time in his life and his career and uh, has to you know, somehow try to, uh, to, to help him get his, day, his life put back mm-hmm. together on the day after, right? Mm-hmm. So it is, that's, the, that's the idea here. And um, it has some really interesting stylistic tweaks in it. Uh, you know, there's some, there, it, it, it does a little, you know, some interesting stuff uh, with black and white photography. And uh, it, it really goes into some, some interesting and wry observations about life and love that are completely disconnected from any culture. They're universal in every conceivable way. And it's, it's, a, it's a really, really good film. So uh, Hong Sang-soo, very famous uh, Korean filmmaker, not necessarily that well-known outside uh, of South Korea very, uh, throughout the world, but um, really uh, this, one, this one is winning, The Day After, and that is also released by Cinema Guild. Mm. Uh, the Unknown uh, Soldier here. Here's a film by Aku. Uh, I can't. How do you pronounce his last name, Wade? Oh dear, I'm gonna uh, Aku uh, Luhimis. Luhimis. Uh, I guess. Anyway, something. Uh, yeah, the, 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 the Finnish Finnish names. Finnish names are always a nice. That's anyway. why I didn't pronounce any names from from Heavy <laughs> Trip because there was no way I was gonna jump into you know the the Lucy <laughs> Oh my God! With all those consonants and yeah. consonants and consonants. Anyway, this is a movie. Um, uh, the 
it's set uh, in, in the middle of war, the middle of World War II. Uh, Finland is a small country. Uh, they find found that they simply had to ally themselves with the Nazis, at least that was sure. from, from their point of view. And this is all about uh, uh, these people, this particular soldier, the family that he's dealing with, and how they are trying to navigate that territory between uh, being allied with the Nazis and not really wanting to be allied with the Nazis and trying to survive uh, until, this, until the damn war is over. It's actually a fairly moving film. A um, uh, few bonus features. Uh, this is a Blu-ray, by the way. A few bonus features include the making of The Unknown Soldier and some deleted scenes. Uh, we've got a movie called um, Farafeza. Farafeza, otherwise known as Ships by Elif Refig. And uh, this is a Turkish film from 2013. I hope I didn't mutilate the, uh, the title of it. This is from Indie Picks. Uh, specifically IndiePix Limited, which ca it can also be seen on Prime Video uh, on uh, Amazon Prime. And uh, it's, 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 a, it's one of those working-class Turkish films that I'm not sure they can necessarily even make anymore right now. There, uh, the situation in Turkey is such that uh, I think there's been a, a real damping of, uh, of uh, the freedom to make just about anything that they want. So we'll see how long that uh, necessarily goes. But this also comes with a, uh, a DVD extra that, uh, of a short film made by director Elif Refig. And um, this is a woman, by the way. Elif Refik is a woman, a female Turkish filmmaker, which is also very, very unusual. And it deals with uh, just a young working-class man who works in the shipyards, and uh, he's looking to, uh, you know, make something of his life. And one day he uh, sees something that really, really touches him and uh, meets up with uh, the creator of this something. And I'm going to be very circumspect here so as to not give it all away. And um, it is how that relationship and that discovery changes him in a very, very existential way. It's a, it's a thoughtful film. It's something of an allegory. And uh, it's, worth, it's really worth checking out, even if you're not necessarily into Turkish films, which can be very, very slow and protracted. Um, also, have a couple of uh, other films here from Distrib, uh, Monsieur and Madame Adelman by Nicholas Bedos and uh, P director Pierre Godot's Down by Love, starring uh, Adele Exarchopoulos and Guillaume Gallien. Um, both of these are really, really good. Uh, Distrib continues to find all kinds of great films, mostly French these days. But um, uh, Monsieur and Madame Adelman won the Audience Award at Colcoa here. Uh, and I remember that was that you know, everyone really really liked this film. It is uh, it's it's essentially just a, a dec several decades in the uh, the life and romance of a couple. And it's you know it it starts in the 1970s and it goes pretty much to the present day. And it's just wonderful. And it it's so honest and it's just so charming and sweet. And I wish it was on Blu-ray, but it's not. Mm. Strip needs to put this out on Blu-ray because it's also beautifully shot. It wonderfully shows off Paris. Um, and uh, similarly engaging, although in a very different way, is Down by Love, which is um, a little bit darker. Uh, Adele Exarchopoulos, who from Blue is the Warmest Color, uh, is, the, is this kind of very troubled woman who meets a guy, played by Guillaume Gallien, and um, they meet under, let's say, very oppressive circumstances. Again, I'm trying not to give stuff away. And uh, their romance, unlike the other one, um, is not just all love and, and, and fluff and cotton and daisies. It's, 
it's a it's rough and tumble and difficult and uh, and has all kinds of uh, rather disturbing tangential issues. And it's all centered around where they meet and how they meet, which I'm not going to tell you because you need to watch the movie. And uh, it's really good. Down by Love for the dark side of romance in France and Monsieur and Madame Adelman for the wonderful, wonderful, charming side of it. Very, very good. Uh, and I have Marquise, a 1997 film starring Sophie Marceau uh, and, and Lambert Wilson and, uh, and uh, a few other people who were all sort of um, happening at that time. This film is about uh, the actress Marquise, that's the name of the film, Marquise, mm -hmm. who uh, came up from poverty to be the favorite of King Louis. Uh, yeah. King, yeah. For a long time, anyway. Uh, Racine, the noted playwright of the, of the era, wrote parts just for her. In, in, in any case, like all of these movies, it ends tragically. Uh, for the mistress, uh, because uh, at, at this was a time when things always ended tragically for the for the mistress. I remember seeing this movie, uh, and uh, I think it might have been the first or second time I even saw Sophie Sophie Marceau um, in, in a film, some, I mean, more than twenty years ago now. And just thinking to myself, this is this is not the greatest movie in the world, but she is fantastic. I love Sophie Marceau uh, so much. And, uh, yeah, it's been around for a while. Then, nevertheless, interesting stuff. Um, uh, on Blu-ray, bonus features include an interview with the director Vera Belmont. And an, uh, an essay uh, about all of these uh, historical characters, which is also kind of interesting. Uh, two Blu-rays here. Cohen Film Collection, Peppermint Soda by Diane Curris, the great French director. And the other one is, <coughs> excuse me, from Clu uh, Kino. Two-disc set of early works by Clouseau. Uh, Henri-Georges Clouseau, not the uh, Inspector Clouseau. Uh, Peppermint Soda, the Diane Curris film from Cohen, is uh, is really very very sweet. It's a you know Diane Curris just cranks movies out and they're all so good. Um, this is uh, this is from 1977 and this is actually her directing debut and it was recently re-released theatrically and uh, Cohen has now put it out on Blu-ray and thank goodness they have because you see everything that has continued to make all of her films so good manifest in her very very first film. And, uh, you know, she came on storming hard in the 1970s as kind of one of the one of a new generation that were heirs to the French New Wave mm. with very, you know, realistic character oriented, um, very uh, stylistically, very, you know, very uh, a hyper realistic, almost near realistic uh, approach to French life. And uh, this all takes place in 1963. It's essentially a coming-of-age, a teen coming-of-age story, very much autobiographical. But it's absolutely beautiful and uh, wonderfully acted and very meticulously directed. Uh, it's a new 2K restoration of the film, transferred to Blu-ray, and it is gorgeous. The Clouseau, the early works, is... Look, if you're, if you're a fan of Clouseau, you obviously know his movies like Wages of Fear and Diabolique mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the stuff that really gets the criterion treatment uh, normally. Uh, this goes back to the 1930s uh, when he was really just starting out and uh, kind of, you know, honing his craft. Uh, two discs, seven films total, um, including the short film The Terror of Batignolles from 1931, which is really, really good. Uh, and then an hour-long film I'll Be Alone After Midnight. The others are all feature-length, Dragnet Night, uh, The Unknown Singer, My Cousin from Warsaw, Tell Me Tonight, and Dreamcastle. These are not his best films. Uh, there, in in some cases, he's just really kind of uh, you know doing workmanlike work for someone else. But you do see his style developing. You see his sensibilities developing. You see uh, the things that he wants to pay attention to, the things he doesn't want to pay attention to. 
And uh, so if you really want to study the work of Clouseau and find out how he came to be that great, intense filmmaker that we all know from his, from his classics, uh, you definitely want to check this out. This is, uh, this is a wonderful collection, Clouseau, The Early Works. Mm. Uh, Jupiter's Moon uh, was a really interesting uh, sort of a film about a Syrian ref refugee that I found striking. So you have this young man, a uh, Syrian refugee, uh, and, and, and he escapes. Uh, he gets himself shot, and he, he ends up in this refugee camp. Mm -hmm. This doctor uh, goes to work on him and fixes him up. And what he finds out, and this is when the film becomes sort of mystical and spiritual, as yeah. any of these films do, is that this young man can levitate uh, at will. He can simply make himself float up into the air. The doctor is kind of crooked and figures, and figures out a way that you know, some money can be made from this. It's a beautiful, beautiful film. <laughs> that while, <clears throat> excuse me, while in fact sci-fi, it's about much, much more than just the science fiction of what's going on. It has to do with uh, the, the refugee pr uh, issue. It has to do with uh, the Middle East in general. It has to do with perception uh, uh, and the desire to get away from all of these things. It's a really, really lovely, lovely film. Uh, I wish that there were more on it in terms of special features, but not, mm, no. Uh, un unfortunate there. Yeah. Um, to Sleep with Anger, a 1990 uh. Charles Burnett film. Uh, one, right. of the, one, one of the first films on, on Criterion, this yeah. is on Criterion. One of the yeah. first films um, that I actually reviewed as a, as a professional really? film Really? Yeah. I didn't know uh, that. Among uh, this one in 1990, Did the Junket for this, too. Charles Burnett, of course, uh, uh, Killer of Sheep. Uh, the one well, uh, the, truly, one of the, the, he's sort of the great filmmaker of the uh, L.A. Rebellion. Yeah. 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 Uh, and not nearly, didn't work nearly as much as Glass, Glass, should still be Glass working. Shield. Yeah. Uh, I, I, it was another film that he did, Michael Boatman. Uh, yeah. I think this might have been his third film. This is just an amazing film. It's about it's set in South Central Los Angeles, which is where Charles Burnett grew up. But he's from the South. He was a part of the Great Diaspora. Yeah. He would be about seventy-five now, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and I'm looking it up. You look. Thank you very yeah. much. And and. And um, this film has Danny Glover playing a, 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 a southern 74. guy. 74. 74. Should Trudden still be directing, should man. Should still be working, man. Yeah. Um, and, and Danny Glover comes into this, uh, to, into this home in South Central Los Angeles, and he just starts stirring up trouble. He's charismatic, and he has this great charm, but, he, uh, but just the way he does things stirs up trouble. And it's all about uh, how uh, this outsider comes into this home. And, and a lot of it really has to do with the community. And it has to do with, in fact, that diaspora of, uh, of black folks who came up from the South and the ones who came here and, and how there's a certain amount of resentment uh, between, between families uh, with that sort of thing. This is what's neat about this movie. This is a wonderful, wonderful movie. But as I look at the cast, uh, when I was watching this movie in 1990 and, and talked to these people, I did not realize uh, I'm talking to uh, Mary Alice, I'm talking to Richard Brooks, I'm talking yeah. to Cheryl Lee Ralph, Carl Lumley, Bonetta McGee, Danny Glover, of course, is in the film. Regina King yeah. is in this movie. Uh -huh. Man, you know, it's, just, know, it's, right? it's, it's really just one of those. Sometimes you just don't know. Cy, Cy Richardson in the movie, uh, that you're in the midst of uh, people who are going to do some really interesting things. You know, it's so upsetting to me. And, 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 and I'm very, very attached to Charles Burnett, partly because, you know, he was, he was one of the pioneers of the UA, UCLA well, film yeah, program yeah. and uh, was part of it, you know, a generation before I was there. But uh, some of those people were still connected to the program when I was there yeah. and, and uh, from the, the LA Rebellion. In particular, which was you know a group of of black filmmaking students in the uh, in the 1970s who you know really decided to try to form their own movement mm -hmm. independent of what was happening in black exploitation that they wanted to go into a more artistic direction a more a more uh, personal direction personal mm -hmm. stories 
and uh, stories that reflected the community. It reflected the community. And again, they, this is the generation before Boys in the Hood. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. And and you know it, he was the one that broke out. Yeah. And, uh, oh, and who's it, the, the African and penitentiary made those penitentiary movies. Uh, Barack, yeah. uh, I forget his name, but you don't know yeah, about that. Yeah. And uh, and Julie Dash was and part Julie, of that too. Julie and Julie was the best. Julie yeah. was part of that too. So it's a uh, you know it's a really really significant group that uh, that left a, a residue for a lot of us that came after. Um, uh, also on Criterion. Got three others. Uh, Ingmar Bergman's Shame, which is also part of the giant Bergman box set, which we still haven't covered uh, completely on this thing because it's just so enormous. But uh, <laughs> you know, so you, if you get the box set, you're you're gonna get Shame in it. You don't need to get it separately. But if you want to get it separately, you can. Uh, it's a uh, it, you know, this is not one of my favorite Bergman films, made in 1968. Uh, it is a uh, it's it's it stars Max von Sydow and Liv Ullman. As a couple of artists, musicians, artists who live on this uh, on this small farm on an island, uh, which then becomes subject to uh, a war around them, and uh, it's similar in some respects to a film that Godard made. Which I'm is it Le Carabinier? Mm. It might be Le Carabinier. Mm. I forget which one it is. But there's a Godard film that's a little bit similar to this, and um, it's. Uh, you know what? As, as a meditation on the effect of war on people, it is very powerful. It is visually extraordinary. I mean, it's you know like everything else that he did with Sven Nyqvist. It's just it's dazzling. But um, it does get a little bit tedious at times. So mm. it's uh, you know it, it's it's almost like he runs out of story and and sometimes has to sort of um, he has to vamp a little bit stylistically and visually to keep your interest. But um, it definitely is one of his more unusual films, one of his riskier films, and I can't fault him for that. It's called Shame. And then uh, there's also Death in Venice, the famous uh, uh, Lucino Visconti movie from 1971. Uh, This is quintessential Visconti, uh, based on the great Thomas Mann novella. And uh, it's just, it's it's incomparable. And it comes with tons and tons of great extras, including a 2008 documentary about Visconti called Life, as in a novel. Uh, and, uh, you know, this has Burt Lancaster and Savannah Magnani and Marcello Mastroianni, um, in the documentary. Uh, and then there's an excerpt from a 1990 show that's about the music in Visconti's films with Dirk Bogard and, uh, Marissa Berenson from, uh, Barry Lyndon fame. And, uh, there's even a short 1970 behind the scenes documentary called Visconti's Venice, which is also very, very good. So uh, Death in Venice, absolutely classic novel or novella, and an equally classic film by Lucino Visconti gets the Criterion treatment on Blu-ray. Fantastic. Mm, uh, also, uh, from a, a lovely Criterion, a lovely Criterion box, uh, Fassbender's uh, Berlin Alexander Plotz. Love it. Uh, fantastic. So this is a television series from, I think, the early 80s, maybe yeah. the late 70s. But, yeah. but, no, early 80s, right? Yeah. yeah. So I think uh, it was early 80s. Yeah. Um, and uh, so this is about, um, in the late 1920s, there was this guy named uh, Franz Bibikoff, and he was released from prison. Uh, and, and, he, and he goes back into his Berlin city, uh, to, to Berlin, to this particular neighborhood of Berlin, which is what this is about. Alexander Plotz is this area. And what the film does is follow uh, uh, this character, who's a character from a novel, uh, uh, and it's mostly, though, about this neighborhood, this very particular community in 1920s Berlin. Uh, and it's a fascinating film, uh, wonderful to watch. This box set has all kinds of stuff on it. Four Blu-ray special edition features uh, are here. 
Um, um, uh, it's 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 just real. Look, I, I mean, uh, 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 Fassbender uh, is a controversial filmmaker. Uh, always has been. Uh, but but his insight uh, into into uh, the sort of human condition, I think, is undeniable. His he's pro, being prolific. His pro, what would be the the word? His profligacy, mm. I guess, is all is the other thing that always blew me away. It's it's one thing when you're making a movie. I mean, he's like Takashi Miike. Mm-hmm. He just he made movies constantly, and he was in his twenties. Yeah. He's writing them and directing them, or writing them and directing them, or writing them and directing them, or writing them and just constantly. I mean, always cranking something out at a, just a, a rapid rate. And then something like Berlin Alexanderplatz isn't just one movie. It's hours and hours yeah. and hours. It's it's 14, hun- 14 or 15 hours. It's hundreds of pages of stuff to to write and shoot. It's you know his brain never stopped uh, stopped working. It was just an amazing thing to to you know the the genius of Fassbender. But he burned out young. Yeah, they all do. They, they had they, to get it done fast. They're like they're like yeah. road flares. He just he just burned out early. Uh, I'm gonna knock out a few Twilight Times here on the new uh, quartet of Twilight Time titles, and then we're gonna we're gonna wrap the show out with uh, new releases from Arrow and Arrow Academy. And boy, are there a ton, and are they a riot? Um, from Twilight Time, and you can get all of these at twilighttimemovies.com uh, exclusively. We start with With Success Spoil Rock Hunter. I love this movie. Oh, I can't yeah. believe they, they, they snatched this one away from Fox and put it out on Blu-ray. And what a great movie. Frank Tashlin, best known for so many terrific um, Jerry Lewis movies, uh, directed this one, which is still probably the best satire about advertising ever. Uh, made in 1957. Tony Randall uh, basically playing the uh, the ad man at the middle of this. And uh, it is, you know, it's just such... Everything this says about uh, advertising is still true. Yeah. It, it What was going on in the 1950s is true now, just in a slightly different way. But it is just such a scathing satire. And it's the best thing that Jane Mansfield has ever done. Uh, her character of Rita Marlowe is absolutely wonderful. And um, for uh, allegedly, according to the notes, too, uh, Godard loves this movie, which makes me almost want to question my love for it. But in any case, there's an audio, there's an audio commentary with uh, film historian Dana Poland, some newsreels, and the usual Twilight Time isolated music track. We also have, very timely, the passing of Stanley Donnan this last week, yeah. uh, last two about two weeks ago. Um, uh, Stanley Donnan made so many great movies, and one of them was Bedazzled. Uh, Bedazzled is an absolutely wonderful classic Stanley Donnan movie from 1967, and it stars uh, Dudley Moore and Peter Cook, who were you know a famous comedy team, and this is probably their best work together. They, it's just the the you know. That those two, uh, directed by Stanley Donnan, it just doesn't get any better. It mm. is absolutely wonderful. It is hilarious. This thing was remade some years later, not very well, um, but it's a, it, it's just a, it's a wonderful, wonderful um, comedic twist on the Faust tale, and uh, it, it's just it's a it's a priceless classic. It's just wonderful. It has isolated music and effects. Um, has an appearance of Peter Cook and Dudley Moore on the Paul Ryan show, not the Paul Ryan who was recently Speaker of the House in the United States. Mm. This is a different Paul Ryan. And uh, and Harold Ramis talking about why Bedazzled is so awesome. We also have the Admirable Crichton. Uh, the Admirable Crichton, uh, directed by Lewis Gilbert uh, and based on the play by J.M. Barry of uh, Peter Pan fame. Um Probably not obviously as well known as Peter Pan, but typically great Barry material. And this was also made in 1957. And uh, it's a story of a, of a butler who has a 
a, a, um, a desert island experience, and it is really, really worth checking out. It is, if you've never seen this, um, it's, a, it's a very interesting and unusual take on the, uh, on the desert island uh, experience. Let's just say that. It is, uh, it's extremely well done. And Kenneth Moore, as the uh, in the title character, is really, really wonderful. Uh, I, I, it's it's a it's a really good movie, The Admirable Crichton. And then lastly, Oliver Stone's talk radio. Somehow Twilight uh, Time snagged talk radio, yeah. which is Oliver Stone's uh, filmed version of the uh, Eric Bogosian play. Yeah, and it basically is a filmed play with, right? with, with Eric, if I'm not mistaken. With Eric, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's basically a filmed play. But it's it's quite good, uh, it, it, you know, for for something that was done very low key the year after Born on the Fourth of July, mm-hmm. he kind of wanted to just take it down. That was a big film, an epic film, and Stone wanted to kind of go the other direction and do something small and quick and not terribly uh, logistically challenging. And that's what this was. And uh, you know, it's loosely based on on uh, on an actual figure, but don't don't worry too much about that. Bogosian is great. Um, it could use a little opening up and be a little bit less of a play, but uh, in terms of shock radio, uh, not much has changed. I gotta say. Yeah, 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 yeah. He even looked like Howard Stern back in the day. Yeah. Uh, Bogosian, Kevin Costner's Waterworld. Oh my gosh, here we go. 1995. Man, this 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 was a moment uh, in 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 Hollywood. Uh, spent an incredible amount of money on this movie. Built that big theme park. Uh, uh, association with it yeah. out at what was it Universal? I think it was yeah. Universal, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Uh, film tanked at the box office. Uh, uh, took it took it on the chin. All kinds of controversy having to do with Kevin Costner and I believe who's his, his buddy who directed that Reynolds. Oh, Kevin uh, Reynolds. Yeah, uh, uh, and it's sort of going back and forth of all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and a lot of folks say that Kevin uh, Costner really sort of took the movie over. And uh, there were issues. There were issues, and the, the, the boys were never the same again. Good, good friend of mine was uh, was working for the effects shop at the time, and he's the one who sculpted the gills. He didn't design the gills. Mm-hmm. He just sculpted the gills that wound up on Kevin Costner's neck. Mm, interesting. Runs, which is what the movie is about, by the way. A lot of folks didn't really get what this movie was about. Yeah. What's interesting now, though, because what happened happens in the movie is that the polar ice caps melt, uh, uh, thus uh, creating the water world. Yeah, exactly. Let me say that again to folks who aren't paying attention. <laughs> what happens in the movie is that the polar ice caps melt. Anyway, 1995, a wee bit prescient, although the, the conditions... This is packed full of all kinds of stuff. <clears throat> On here in terms of special features, um, has this been around before? Has this been out? This has a little booklet and all. This is yeah. This has been out released, but this is the special edition now from Arrow. They went and did the Criterion okay. on it, and I, yeah, it's a little weird movie to do a Criterion kind of treatment on. But at the same time, it is kind of notorious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of this one and the Postman are the two. I Kevin love I loved, not, you, We loved the Post. People we again the weren't paying attention to what the movie is about, folks. Yeah. You know, they were just busy taking pot shots at Kevin. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, uh, th- th- this was a pretty. Pretty, pretty pretty neat film so far as I remember back in the day, and it's kind of prescient nowadays. Three discs in this box and a neat little booklet, too. Uh, the Apartment from 1960. Oh, my God, this movie. You know what's funny about this movie? Billy uh, Wilder. One Billy best, Wilder. One best picture. Uh, uh, a 1960 movie, Billy Wilder, I.A.L. Diamond, uh, writing with him, Jacqueline and Sherilyn Clay Fred McMurray, all that stuff. Now, here's the thing about this movie that's interesting to me. This movie is about uh, these men who have uh, a spot, uh, they're, you know, one of their co-workers' apartment, where they can take their mistress, uh, generally speaking, this one secretary, uh, and have sex with her. 
Yep. Let's let's think about that again <laughs> in the context of a post Me Too sort of uh, uh-huh. Matt Lauer, Les Moonves world. This film is about those guys and how they behave. Yet it is in the context of this Billy Wilder uh, uh, the movie. It's a comedy. Uh, a fairly lighthearted uh, romp of a comedy, although there is some contemplation of suicide in it by one or two of the people. Um, interesting, though, right? The sort of content and the way it can exist in 1960 yep. in the exact same content. You cannot make this movie today with that. With, not not in this not in this way anyway. No, not even not even close. Uh, 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 I have uh, the prisoner, uh, Alex Guinness film. Uh, Peter Glenville's uh, uh, the, the Prisoner, not the one with Patrick McGowan, the television series, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, which you know. Yeah. Uh, Alec Guinness, Jack Hawkins film. This was a controversial film. It was banned from Cannes uh, in the Venice Film Festival when it came out um, uh, because they said that it was uh, pro-Soviet propaganda. Uh, the, the, the film is basically set in about 1957. Uh, is some uh, unnamed sort of Eastern European country. There's this very powerful cardinal um, um, uh, who goes into interrogation, and, and, and they know that they're not going to be able to... It's not like uh, 1984. Uh, but you have a sort of dynamic there where there's this interrogation going on where this uh, interrogator is trying to... Alec Guinness plays the cardinal, is trying, is trying to break this cardinal, but he knows he can't do it with torture. He knows he has... So it's an interesting sort of notion. This film was banned. Yeah, you know that it, used to happen. That, you know, a lot doesn't it's, happen anymore. There's nothing remotely bannable in this film, no. in any way, yeah. shape, or form today, which is what's interesting. It, no, movies don't get banned anymore; no. they, they just wind up on Bravo. Oh yeah, yeah, they might. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's your punishment <laughs> for making your dumbass movie. Uh, uh, um, and um, unless you're uh, what's his name, um, Lars. Lars oh, got Montreal. banned. Yeah. No, well, he got banned. Well. Uh, from can he, he got banned by odd yeah from can because yeah. he he said something like about you know, nazis something like you know hitler was was cute in a dress or i don't know yeah, or something just, weird stupid he, but you talking. know what that's not even going to happen anymore because no. you know what you're stupid and we're not even going to bother to ban you go away yeah uh anyway uh, uh the prisoner all right we got uh, got some interesting little genre gems here also from arrow uh phantom lady by noir expert robert siadmach uh, who uh, made this movie in 1944, right around the end of World War II, and uh, it's kind of a neglected movie in his uh, in his oeuvre a little bit. Uh, but uh, as a as kind of a mid level noir, it's actually um, it's it's not bad actually. Uh, it it deals with you know there's a murder and it's it's it the the funny thing about the murder is it's about you know there's the, it's strangulation by necktie which I always thought was hilarious because <laughs> as as a man who does occasionally wear neckties I don't know how anybody could get strangled by those no. things they, you know what I'm saying they, it would just it would just come undone you could be just made uncomfortable to death. <laughs> <laughs> but the tie wouldn't actually kill you. It anyway, it's you know it's good it's good writing stuff, but it would never actually happen in, in real life. But in any case, uh, so you know you got the strangulation by necktie, you got the alibi, who really did it? What da, 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 da. Uh, so you know uh, Cornell Woolrich, who was kind of a mid-level pulp writer, wrote the uh, the original novel, and uh, it's this is this is you know it, it, this is a fun discovery. Uh, some cute stuff on here. A lot of great extras. Uh, including Dark and Deadly 50 Years of Film Noir, which is a documentary uh, with all kinds of in- uh, great interview subjects. And then there's even a uh, 1944 radio production for Lux Radio Theater of Phantom Lady, which is really, really cool. Um, we've also got Color Me Blood Red, which was uh, the last installment in Herschel Gordon Lewis's Blood Trilogy. 
I recommend this only if you just can't get enough Herschel Gordon Lewis. If you have the other two and you've just got to complete your uh, your Herschel Gordon Lewis Gore trilogy, by all means, go get it. It's probably the weakest of the three uh, in every conceivable way. It's not it's not as interesting or as gory. And by this time, you know he's he's already shocked everybody he could possibly shock. So there isn't, you know, much left here. It's about a you – know, the story deals with a painter who uh, – it, it's let, let's just say this is, this is kind of like his version of, um, uh, of Corman's um, – Oh, uh, 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 the, uh, with, with, with the with guy – with, with the sculptor. The, who just died. Uh, yes. Just, uh, who, oh. Why are we drawing a blank yeah, on that? Yeah, why are we drawing yeah, – uh, yeah. yeah, but you know what I'm drawing. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it, where, where, uh, the bucket of blood. Bucket of blood. He yeah. just died. Uh, who, who does, uh, Dick Star Miller. Dick, Dick Miller. Miller. Dick just died. Yeah. So it's little. This is sort of like uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis's version of Bucket of Blood with Dick Miller, which is you got an artist who can't quite, you know, uh, figure out where his his he's 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 having kind of a, a lull, let's say, and uh, his girlfriend cuts her finger, and he realizes that's it. I need blood to make my art, and there you go. Mm-hmm. The rest is history. It's a Herschel Gordon Lewis movie, and then the uh, the last of these three is Horror Express. Uh, Horror Express is actually really, really good. This is uh, one of those hammery pairings of Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, and um, uh, it's pretty silly. Uh, it's you know, it's a, it's one of those train horror thrillers where you know it's like zombies and all kinds of monstrous goings on on a train that is bound for Moscow, and uh, it doesn't really make any sense. It's just an, it's, but it, who cares, you know? It's uh, it is what it is. Um, co-production with Spain and um, comes with tons of extras, uh, interviews with everybody imaginable, some uh, some featurettes and uh, you know the usual. Uh, but otherwise, you're you're watching it mainly for Cushing and Lee, and uh, they they make the best of a of a bad lot. Telly Savalas also shows up in this ah, thing for some me. for some strange reason. Interesting. Uh, the Forbidden Photos of a Lady Above Suspicion uh, is a fairly interesting sort of Italian thriller uh, uh, by Luciano Arrolicoli. Um This 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 is actually a pretty pretty neat movie. What you basically have is this sort of um, it's, it's not it's not a triangle because there are four four folks involved. You got this business guy quadrangle quadrangle which would be a square yeah oh, <laughs> which would be a square or or a rectangle. Um, <laughs> That's um, um, it, it, in and uh, there's a, a blackmail is going on. Uh, it, it, he has an affair with her. Some photographs were taken. Uh, she uh, he's he's blackmailing her and and but it, uh, a twist and a turn and all that kind of stuff. And it's pretty it's a pretty neat little film. What's interesting here is that the special edition has all kinds of new stuff on it, including the this two. 2K restoration from the original Cameron negative. So Arrow Films is actually uh, doing right by this particular movie. Nice. Not, not bad at all. Not bad at all. Got a couple by uh, director Joseph H. Lewis here, uh, who was uh, you know a workman like B movie guy back in the day, and uh, came out of the came out of Poverty Row, and proceeded to make some some noirs and some dramas, and really have uh, kind of an interesting uh, mid level career. And made a lot of movies that really kind of transcended their budgets and their casts. And two of those are right here, also uh, from Arrow Academy. The first is My Name is Julia Ross. The other one is So Dark the Night. Um, Both of them come with uh, heaps and heaps of extras. So Dark the Night is probably um, the most interesting of them. It's got a – it's a real kind of a twisty, turny, Hitchcockian thing that deals with a detective in France – 
um, who goes out into the countryside to kind of get away from all of his, uh, the, you know, the, the, the stuff that he normally puts up with in Paris and just kind of unwind a little bit. And uh, there he finds both love and a mystery. Mm. And uh, things get very twisty and dark after that. And it's kind of a little Agatha Christie in there, woven in there, too. My name is Julia Ross. Uh, is uh, is also a mystery, uh, l- slightly less interesting, but also a less interesting cast, and uh, it all takes place in in London. I think it was shot entirely in the U.S. though. But uh, anyway, basically takes place in in London and uh, in this kind of crusty mansion, and uh, some nasty goings on in the mansion, and uh, we have to. Kind of figure out is somebody you know is there some gaslighting going on? What's what's the what's actually happening in this quirky old mansion? I guess you could call it maybe a bargain basement Rebecca on some level, uh, maybe a little bit of Jane Eyre wrapped in here too, uh, with uh, you know touches of things like Vertigo. Uh, it, it's it, it kind of borrows from everything. It's a uh, it's it can't quite figure out what it needs to be, but it uh, it if you are a fan of uh, Joseph H. Lewis, you'll probably enjoy it for the for the most part. It definitely has its moments. And uh, let's see. Ah, uh, a couple of uh, the Italian ones to knock off yeah. here. Uh, Luigi Bazzoni's The Fifth Chord, uh, starring Franco Nero. Neat, neat little movie, kind of a thriller, with Franco pa- playing this journalist, a bit of an alcoholic journalist, uh, who finds himself on the trail of a uh, of, of a of a, uh, a serial killer, a murderer, anyway. Uh, and what happens is the police think he did it, so he has to sort of like uh, sober up and figure out who actually did the killing before they put him away for it. Uh, also by Luigi uh, Bazzoni, The Possessed, uh, along with Franco Rosalini, which is about a, a writer, again, who arrives in the small Italian village looking for this very specific woman. Everybody in the village tells him that she committed suicide some time ago, uh, yet no one can be very specific about anything. Where is she buried? When did it happen? Exactly what happened? The stories aren't straight. He can tell something wacky is going on and, and starts to investigate. Meanwhile, there is a strange woman uh, in this movie who's walking around uh, at the bottom of this lake, and it's kind of interesting. Uh, but Zoni, the, the, look, um, a lot of this stuff just really comes out of the uh, when Argento, uh, the 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 um, uh, the bird with the crystal plumage, and uh, sure. all that kind yeah. of stuff, and he ushered in that whole giallo period. And then the next thing you know, every Italian dude with with a Super 8 camera was and, and a bottle of ketchup was making movies, uh, you know, just these gory sort of giallo movies, and they got away with it for about 20, 25 years. Generally speaking, they weren't very good. These two are not that terrible. The Fifth Chord. By, by Luigi Bazzoni and The Possessed by Luigi Bazzoni, along with uh, Franco Rossellini. We also have these two two Japanese films here to wrap this out, and then one Criterion that I uh, that I neglected to uh, include previously, uh, the Sister Street Fighter collection. Mm. So so here's the deal: after uh, the Street Fighter starring Sonny Chiba, mm-hmm. they thought let's do a let's do a chick flick, uh, like make a female Street Fighter. Let's do that. So they took um, uh, Itsuko Shihomi, who was in Street Fighter in kind of a small part, mm-hmm. gave her own movie, made Sonny Chiba a supporting part. And uh, in this one, she goes, you know, she's half Chinese, half Japanese, and she goes to Yokohama to look for her brother, who's a cop who's disappeared. And there's a whole big tangled 
cartel thing, crime thing going on, and you know she's got to take. She and Sonny got to just go break some bones. <laughs> Forget about the plot. It's just a lot of action and bone breaking. It's really great, and she's really good. And uh, they included the follow-up films, which were completely negligible: Sister Street Fighter, Hanging by a Thread, Return of the Sister Street Fighter, and. Uh, the final film, Sister Street Fighter Fifth Level Fist, which has nothing to do with any of the preceding ones. It just has a title that mm. exploits it. Uh, and, uh, you know, that was, that was all of these were done in the 1970s. And uh, lots of extras here, fun stuff, um, isolated score highlights for the first three films and uh, all the original trailers. It's really a lot of fun. If you love this series, and I think this series is so awesome, yeah. uh, it's because it just does it, it's completely unrestrained. And then talking about unrestrained, Takashi Miike's audition. Oh wow, audition man! man this that, movie. that movie messed. That movie. <laughs> it, that movie. That movie. We, could, we was, were just talking about him. Miike, Miike, you know, and I've interviewed Miike and done commentary for for one of his films. He's he's out of his mind, but in a really good way. But audition is the thing that really brought him to the attention of a lot of people who'd never heard of him before in the yeah. United States. I mean, look. The, the bottom line is this movie makes men squeamish. Yes. It just takes grown men and and turns them into they just curl up in a fetal position when they after they've seen this. Um it really it's it's this is a tough movie to watch. Yeah. Uh the the climax is just oh, you it, it, it so here's the thing. I still remember really really well. Uh this was 1999. Oh yeah. And and that was oh, my 20 years ago now. 20 years ago. Oh, that geez. was my first year in Lafka. And I remember we were voting at Michael Reschaffen's house, and everybody's packed in there, the usual thing, you mm-hmm. know, and voting the way. And three, two, one, uh, you know, three, you know, one, one point to, the, to this director and two points to that director. And going around the room, it comes around to Bob Strauss. Bob Strauss, who writes for the LA Daily News and who mm-hmm. is truly one of the funniest people I've ever known. And, and because he's so deadpan. Yeah. And Bob sits there in his very sort of deadpan way, uh, you know. Um, one point for David Lynch, two points for, you know, whatever. He's just doing his thing. And he finally says, and three points to that lunatic who directed Audition. (laughs) And that's all he said. And I laughed. I laughed so hard. I was in tears. I I, I I couldn't see through the tears for about 10 minutes. Three points to that lunatic who directed Audition. Yes, Didn't even have his name on the tip of his tongue. Yes, God bless Bob Strauss. And then the very last thing here. uh, Sorry we forgot to include this earlier. Should have gone with the uh, the mention of Clouseau because uh, when we we're we we're transitioning from Clouseau over to Criterion, this got lost in the in the mix there a little bit. Um, Henri Georges Clouseau's La Verite from 1960, wow. starring Brigitte Bardot, which is an absolutely brilliant film. It's every bit the equal of uh, of you know, especially something like Les Diaboliques. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, but it's never it doesn't really get enough attention anyway. It was Oscar-nominated at the time in 1960, but um, kind of fell by the wayside thereafter. Um, really, really interesting. Maybe the best performance Brigitte Bardot has ever given on on, on screen. And, um, you know, as someone a- accused of having murdered her lover. Mm. And she really, really goes to, she goes to the wall with it, and it's a tremendous performance. And it's a really stylish film, and it, it has a lot to say about, you know, the, the social circumstances that contribute to um, these, these kinds of situations. And 
it's really it's it's a it's a great uh, morality play. It's really a terrific morality play. So uh, a lot of good extras on here. It's taken from a 4K digital restoration, and uh, it includes a 60-minute documentary from 2017, all about Clouseau, which is superb, and a 1960 interview with him, as well as an interview with um, Brigitte Bardot from the 1982 documentary Brigitte Bardot Tel Quel, which means mm. as she is. Terrific movie, La Verite. She's, she's so crazy. Oh, she's out of her mind, but we love that. <laughs> That's okay. All right. With that, we are done for this week, and uh, we will see you guys next week.